Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. I'm Teresa. And we have a lot of things to do today. So many things. So many things. For a Monday. It's a lot for a Monday. (laughs) Yeah. But don't worry. It's all good stuff. It's all going to be fun. (laughs) So here in a minute, we're going to get to our movie, which as promised is Hellraiser from 1987. Yes. But first, seeing as we just wrapped up Virgo season and are tiptoeing into Libra season... We have some things to announce that took all of Virgo season to hatch because we are the Virgo-iest Virgos who ever (laughs) Virgoed and had to make everything as perfect as we humanly could until we ran out of time and said, okay, we just have to rip the Band-Aid off and do this. (laughs) That's very typical for us. Yeah. Because we put so much thought and effort into it that then we're like, we can't. No, it can't be. It's not perfect enough. Yeah. And then finally we're like, oh, wait, we said Virgo season. So... We just have to do it. I mean, I feel like that's the story of this whole podcast. There was a whole other podcast before this podcast. Oh my gosh. With a lot of work that went into it. A lot of work. And then we were like, oh, wait. Yeah. Let's let's just do a horror film podcast and let's just launch it like in three weeks. And you know what? It's been, it's actually been so much easier. So much better for so many reasons. Yes. What are we doing? What are we announcing? So we are super, super, super excited to finally announce that Juliet and I will be launching a Patreon woot, woot. later this year. Exact date TBA. <laughs> but uh, coming very soon, we're going to be launching a Patreon. And there's a bunch of different goodies that you can get, some exclusive content that you won't hear on our regular feed, some cool ways to interact with us, some goodies, of course, because what's a patreon without like some tears that have some swag with it so yeah we're pretty excited we're we're we are working behind the scenes to get that done (laughs) yeah yeah keep an eye on our socials for the link and all of that good stuff we'll be launching it pretty soon it's nearly ready i think the things are yeah we're sitting on it man we are it's getting warm yeah yeah it's like a little egg. Yes. Hatching. Yes. The the purple and green egg of Attack of the Final Girls is nearly ready. It's very close to being there. But we just want to make sure that like as soon as we launch, obviously, we have some good stuff ready. And it's not like, okay, we launched it. And then in like three months, okay, now we have stuff. <laughs> yeah. The um sort of fatal mistake for people who do stuff in the horror realm like this has been my reality forever is that like the expectation is that you launch everything in the fall right (laughs) you're just so busy like people always joke with my partner and I they're like oh my gosh what are you doing for Halloween and we're like dude by the time we get around to Halloween we just really want to sleep because (laughs) September and October are such intense months in terms of like events and releases and charity work and this that and the other so yeah exactly (laughs) same thing with hosting a horror podcast yeah like we want to do all the things for halloween but also we also want to hibernate i think sometimes we forget that we're like animals basically that walk on two legs and that around this time we need to hibernate yeah exactly (laughs) and slow a little bit down but light is changing right i want to go in my cave yes but October, all of the Halloween stuff demands go, 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 do, do, do. And it's like, no, yeah. <laughs> we can't. Yeah. But we're, we are going to do that for our Patreon subscribers and for our regular listeners. We have like, we're still going to do our every two week thing and you'll still be able to hear us wherever you listen already. Mm-hmm. The Patreon's just going to enhance that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So regular listeners, um, you know, we get it. Not everybody can be a patron, you know, so we want to really keep what we do accessible to everybody so you will get all of your normal every two week podcast goodness with the movies and all that still the occasional bonus episode in the regular feed too um we've got a couple of things that will kind of scatter throughout but for those who are able to support the podcast via patreon we'll have some extra extra goodies for you and uh more on all of that to come Ooh, yeah all right so in the meantime Let's launch into our movie. We're talking Hellraiser 1987, the original, the OG. 
I am so excited to cover this movie. I love this movie. I love Clive Barker. I'm excited about the remake, too. Yeah, we've been talking about this one for a while. And now that the remake is almost ready, I think it's coming out the first or second week of October on Hulu. Yeah. And it's exclusive to Hulu. Since that's been announced, like, and all of the buzz surrounding the casting and all of that stuff, we've been like, okay, well, we need to cover the original, the OG. Definitely. Especially because I have never met him, but I think you've met Doug Bradley, right? Um, yeah, like once. I have a I have a friend that has worked with him several times, and so I've gotten to meet him once. He's very cool. Yeah, he's like at least prior to pandemic times, he was a very um, frequent guest at a lot of horror conventions. Mm-hmm. He's a super accessible guy. Very, very kind, really nice older British dude. Yeah. Um, he's just, I think that's a misconception and sometimes kind of a crappy thing that you hear about horror conventions is depending on who the person is, like they might kind of be an asshole. But by and large, I feel like for the most part, all of the people, all of the stars I've encountered have been really, really cool. Maybe weird. Sure. Definitely yeah. met some weird people, <laughs> but also like really cool they know the reason why they're there is the fans. They want to give the fans what they want. So, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, we've always had really good encounters with folks at horror conventions. I mean, typically for my partner and I, we're working at horror conventions. So we don't we don't typically, with a few rare exceptions, uh, we don't typically have the time or the bandwidth while we're at a convention to like stand in line for autographs or photo ops or anything. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of exceptions over the years where it was like must meets for one or both of us. But we also get to sort of encounter people like at the beginning of the day when everybody's getting to their table or whatever. And yeah, most nearly everybody is like incredibly, incredibly cool and humble and like excited to be there and to like meet their fans yeah and props to the folks that organize horror conventions because they do a good job of like putting a quote-unquote handler with the the person to try Mm -hmm. and keep their day smooth and keep everything kind of running correctly and i know that that's not easy organizing a horror convention i know a little bit i know you know more than i do about this but it seems like a complete nightmare (laughs) all the time And that you're not, like, you can't take any kind of, like, satisfaction out of it until, like, maybe two months after when you, like, can finally take a breath and you don't have brains. And if you're like most people, you're already planning the next one Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, anyways, I don't know why we got off on that tangent. Although, we just had, like, a whole slew of horror conventions. Yeah. That just happened around here. So, it's relevant. Yeah, totally. Tis the season, as they say. Tis our season. Yeah. This is, uh... We're not really um, Christmas celebrators so much, but this, yeah. this is our this is our Christmas season. But if you, for whatever reason, have never seen Hellraiser, which I would imagine that there's probably like less than three percent of our listeners who, <laughs> that I just randomly pulled that percentage out of my butt. So I mean, it's a good percentage. I mean, honestly, if you have never seen it, like this is the moment to see it. I think. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, no judgment if you've not gotten around oh, yeah. to it or if you're newer to the genre. I think this is a really good moment to take in the original in anticipation of the remake. If you end up doing that in the reverse order, I think that's okay too. Like totally. if you aren't getting to us for another month, two months, six months, whatever with this episode, and you've watched the remake on Hulu and loved it, which I hope you did because I hope it's going to be awesome. I really think it's going to. And you're like, oh, I should go back and watch the original. Welcome. Hello. I hope you like the original as much as you like the remake or the flip of that. Yeah. The basic premise of the movie is a couple moves into a home, kind of an ancestral home, and discover the body of the man's, the man of the couple, it's a cis-hetero couple, the man's brother, and chaos ensues. I don't, like, how much more can you even, <laughs> there's so much to explain, it's like, there's so much. It's such an plot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that. And also, there's, like, uh, cool S&M demons. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, alternately... There is a puzzle box and chaos ensues is also a way to describe this movie. And that one, that's a good um, synopsis that could apply to any of the Hellraiser movies. Yeah. So that's sort of the whole franchise right there. Yep. And that's all you really need to know because the rest of the movies 
that's exactly what happens. Yeah. There's a puzzle box and chaos ensues. Briefly, the cast of characters. So the director and writer of the movie is Clive Barker. He wrote the original piece that this is based off of, the novel called The Hellbound Heart. Our main cast of characters, you have Andrew Robinson playing Larry, Claire Higgins playing his wife, Julia, Ashley Lawrence, this is her debut, playing Kirsty, Larry's daughter. And then you have Sean Chapman playing Frank, who's the uncle. And you have Doug Bradley, obviously, playing his pinhead role, which he played for quite a few years. Yeah. So that's the basic, like, the main people, your main cast of characters, I suppose you could say, for this one. It's a classic, for sure. Um, it's not for everybody. I would say it's pretty intense. Mm-hmm, pretty definitely. intense scenes. It's not your typical ghost story, both with the use of practical effects and also, I would say, metaphorically or psychologically. Definitely. I think it's pretty scary. So. Yeah, yeah. The symbolism is definitely not for everybody. And I think when we talk about the demons in this movie, like we need to make it clear, this is not, again, if you haven't seen this, if you're thinking about watching it and you're listening to this, this is not your typical, you know, possession film where those are so common these days. Mm-hmm. This is not demons in that regard. This is kind of demons in the absence of religion, so to speak, although kind of. Mm-hmm. So we're, I think we'll get into that a little more as we kind of mind the movie. This has a lot less to do with like demons as they relate to God and a lot more with sort of the sensual side of you know demons and satan and hell and things like that and by sensual i don't just mean sexual Mm -hmm. i mean sensual as in dealing with all of the senses and the way that the senses interpret pain and pleasure yes definitely and i think that that is i mean i don't know what this movie was received like in 1987 it's a cult classic for sure now so who knows but definitely in 1987 i'm not sure if people were ready to receive the message like in general hellraiser is kind of a tamed down version of the hellbound heart oh yeah the the text that this comes from and that's what i meant when i said at the end of our last episode like i don't know (laughs) I don't know if I would want to be in Clive Barker's head for very long because it is very dark. Yeah. And this movie is just a glimpse into that. And he's made other movies. He's written other movies. I know that he did like a graphic novel slash comic series Mm -hmm. and stuff. That is some very, very, very dark stuff. Yeah. As a horror fan, I'm not a stranger to dark stuff, but like this is stuff that I probably would not recommend to every person like definitely not, not that it's not good it's great oh yeah it's storytelling fantastic. storytelling is really really good but definitely not for everybody and this is this is one of those um things even though it's just a fraction of how messed up hellbound heart is it's a lot yeah yeah clive barker stuff is it's marked with a certain amount of intensity really strong imagery i i would say it almost skirts the line between fantasy and horror mm-hmm. in again like i feel like you know especially in post peter jackson lord of the rings post game of thrones era when we think of fantasy we think very specifically about elves and dragons and things like that but i'm talking more of the fantastical you know Mm -hmm. think um scary fantasy the witcher um pan's labyrinth things like that but like darker and way more sexual (laughs) yeah yeah dealing with like a lot more intense subject matter but yeah but really this is kind of like pushing fantasy to that point like yeah pushing literally pushing fantasy to the point of pain and then beyond that Mm -hmm. But I did read interesting bit of trivia. I read that Clive Barker was a sex worker from time to time. Uh, yeah. When he first started writing in order to pay the bills, basically, in order to go from writing gig to writing gig, he would be a sex worker in between, which makes so much sense, like in watching Hellraiser now, after knowing that, and how sex is used kind of as a tool of manipulation mm-hmm. um, in context of hellraiser it totally makes sense because we're also talking like late 70s early 80s sex work which was i'm sure and i'm not sure if this was in the united states or in the uk but i'm sure it was much different more dangerous 
more uh, more on the edge of like what you would talk about in polite society type thing, you know. I think that that is, I think it's evident in this. Like when I watch Hellraiser now, knowing how he feels about it and knowing that he was a sex worker at a certain point in time, I feel like it all kind of, kind of coincides. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We see sex treated a lot of different ways throughout the movie. And one of them is transactional Mm -hmm. you know although in those cases the transaction is not what the people involved think it's going to be but there is a transactional element there's you know sex as lust sex as a means to an end sex for pain and pleasure you know all of these different things but i i definitely think that either consciously or unconsciously his work as a sex worker definitely informs the text and thus the film and 1987 was a time when, quote unquote, polite sex versus like the S&M scene. Mm-hmm. The S&M scene was starting to take front and center. It was popular, especially on like the queer fringes. You had your leather clubs um, or leather bars, but you also had like S&M clubs. You had more safe sex parties and that kind of thing, especially in the late 80s and the early 90s. So... You can definitely see how that also influenced, like, the changing attitudes surrounding sex, but also sort of that, like, daring people to, like, okay, we'll say something about this. You know, mm-hmm. like, I'm I'm confronting you with this. Just look at it. You know, that kind of thing. Which I'm excited to see how the new reimagining of this is going to handle that. Definitely. And, are like, are we still going to get these, like, sort of sexy, scary, like less sexy more scary cenobites are we going to get those in this movie are we going to have the same sort of pain pleasure sort of thing or are they going to be more demonic yeah i'll also be interested to see i mean obviously we know based on the casting that they are being way more intentional with queer representation and i think part of a product of the fact that this movie the original movie came out in 1987 is that we're pretty much I mean there's some implications throughout and more so in the hellbound heart than in the film but we're pretty much only seeing cis heterosexual sex Mm -hmm. um, granted pushed to kind of the limits you know and this film definitely had some issues with the MPAA getting its R rating so it could get a wide release But my hope is that in this reimagining that we get to see more queer representation in the characters, in the sex that's portrayed and things like that as well. Especially considering Clive Barker is probably one of the earliest like big name writer, director, out gay men. Definitely in horror. Yeah. Yeah, in, In horror. Yeah. Like. I would really love to see that. And apparently he was a big part in getting the reimagining made. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. But another interesting piece of trivia that I read is that Pinhead's original design, who he's called the priest in the Hellbound Heart. And he was actually supposed to be called the lead Cenobite in this one. But Pinhead stuck because it looks like he has a bunch of pins in his head. His original design was supposed to have a navel ring showing through the hole in his coat hinting that he would have genital piercings, which I just thought that was funny that that was, like, very edge in 1987, (laughs) which makes me wonder, like, now that we have Straight to Streaming, we have this movie that's coming out on Hulu, like, what boundaries are we going to be pushing this time? I'm really hoping that as much as I want this to be widely accepted and for people to, you know, embrace this kind of with open arms, I also want to know, like, if we're going back to hopefully returning to sort of because the sequels like although we're not talking about the sequels they yeah. kind of like they kind of they kind of muddy the um after three the definitely lore. Yeah. yeah they like muddy the lore you're not really sure so if we are returning to a more like a more original aspect of the cenobites i'd really love to know what boundaries they're going to be pushing this time definitely i think that's interesting too when we're talking about pinhead it occurred to me when we were watching this film that You know, you look at Pinhead in this original movie and you've got this very subversive character in this very subversive film. And Pinhead is, you know, not just iconic because of the pins in his head, you know, but 
all of the Cenobites, they have, as you said, you know, all of these trappings of like club culture and uh, BDSM culture and all of these things, which is in and of itself queer culture. Mm-hmm. Do you find it interesting that although, you know, Clive Barker really fought against this in the making of the film, that Pinhead, you know, we see, again, it's Halloween season, spirit Halloween. Everybody's got their stuff up in their sections in their stores. Mm -hmm. Like, Pinhead is right there alongside Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers and Ghostface. You know, he's one of the icons. But... Like, I just, I I wonder what that takes away from the character, because I don't think that, like, you know, people are necessarily thinking about this queer subversive character (laughs) when they're seeing, like, the standy pinhead, you know, um, next to the standy Freddy Krueger or whatever. Yeah, I definitely think that that sort of marketing, while cool, I think that the, you know, the pinhead standy that makes, <laughs> that says, like, his lines, like, yeah. no tears, such a waste of good suffering. Um, I think that those are funny, but it's definitely reductive. Yeah. Like, Freddy is easy because he's supposed to be funny and goofy. Right. Although dealing with some intense subject matter, he kind of is like the goofy, funny, like wisecracking, you know, he tells jokes, like he literally tells puns and jokes. You're Michael Myers, you're Jason, both of those very quiet, like the the quiet killers. I think it's kind of the same thing with Hannibal Lecter. Like I mentioned to you Mm -hmm. while we were watching, the scary thing about Hannibal Lecter is that he's super intelligent and he knows like he's three steps ahead of you and it kind of feels the same way with Pinhead. So I do think it's kind of reductive to kind of lump him in there. Mm-hmm. But Spirit Halloween's going to Spirit Halloween. It's you know? true. It's so true. <laughs> <laughs> and people are still going to be buying those masks and stuff because they want to emulate him. Um, they want to emulate Pinhead, although those masks don't look very good anyways. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> although it'd be really, really hard to like, you know, do the pins all over your head. That'd be yeah. very hard. It w- that would be a, um, definitely a chore. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I I don't know. I think it's cool. I want more people to know about it. But also, yes, I'm kind of like, meh about that. Yeah. About the way that those, um, I mean, you could say that for like a lot of different masks or like Halloween costumes or whatever. And I think that we're getting to the point where now we're like, a little bit more careful about what costumes and stuff we have up in stores yeah so we'll see we'll see how that goes in the in the coming years i'm sure that it's there's probably going to be a huge resurgence now that the movie's coming out i would assume so yeah so here's a weird thing the flashback scenes that we get for julia at first i thought it was just one day it seems like it's probably at least a couple of days yeah where, where julia is falling for frank i got the impression when we first see the throwback that Julia is, like, really, like, naive. Mm-hmm. She's getting ready to get married to Larry. And, like, she's the blushing bride and everything. And then Frank, like, comes in and kind of, like, uses his machismo to, like, you know, flip out a switchblade and, like, cut her lingerie. And she's like, oh, I'm in. Yeah. yeah. Somehow, to me, it seems like Frank is, like, a total schizoid. But he gets Julia in very little time to like Mm -hmm. just completely roll over and be like i'm not in love with larry i'm in love with you i'll do whatever you want anything you want literally anything and she does what in the world is she attracted to in this guy i just can't i cannot fathom well i have i have i have theory okay um my Theory is, well, number one, we don't know prior to her encounter with Frank, we don't know if she's a virgin or not. Okay. We know that this is Larry's second marriage. Right. um, Because he was married to Kirstie's mom previously, who is deceased. Yes. Yes. Okay. We don't know if Julie is a virgin. I think based on the sex scene the first sex scene Mm -hmm. that she is a virgin because they very deliberately show her on the bed with Frank and her wedding dress, her white wedding dress is there. So to me, that's like, ding, ding, ding. Okay. That makes sense. Here are the trappings of virginity being trampled upon by this man. Yeah. 
I think it all comes down to orgasms. Oh, see? okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you see Julia having sex with Frank, and clearly she's, like, ecstatic. She's having yeah. a great time. And then she's having sex with Larry later on, or at least they're, like, getting to that point. And she's literally begging him to stop. And it takes him a minute to stop, like, longer than is necessary. She's literally moaning, no, please, I can't bear it. Yeah. And he's like, I don't understand you. You were all over me. And I was like, dude, before you started this whole thing, like, before you started putting the moves on her, she was not in any, she told you earlier she wasn't feeling well. And she's not in any state to start doing this. But you're like. Okay. Like, all right. Let's here we go. go. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like all systems go. And then afterwards, when she's like, she's screaming, "No, I can't bear it!" Because you know the strange corpse of Frank is like behind her, filleting a rat. So that's why she's saying, "No, I can't sure, bear yeah. it." <laughs> <laughs> but also the way that Larry reacts to that, like, "Oh I, yeah, I don't understand you. You one minute you're all over me, and now, and it's like." Uh, well and you can tell because when they get to the house when they move into the house larry talks about it being a fresh start for them mm -hmm. so it's kind of obvious to me that they were having problems yeah and you know again we look at julia in the flashbacks and she does seem very naive and we look at julia now and she is very chic and very yes. put together. There are a lot of interesting stepmother parallels that I want to get to later with sort of the whole evil stepmother trope. But she, you know, she's kind of like the evil queen in this movie, yeah. you know, and looks great doing it, yeah. I have to say, in yeah. all of her 80s glory. Like her makeup is great. Her The costuming is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And in some of the scenes, especially in some of the flashback scenes, it kind of has that... And maybe you have a better technical term for it because I don't know what to say it is. But it's like the strange glowy soap opera filter. Oh, yeah. It's like a soft filter. Yeah. yeah. She's uh -huh. she's uh, filmed in that like mm -hmm. filter, like 80s perfume ad, like yeah. fuzzy filter with like pink. And you see the little like glints of stuff shining. Yeah. yeah she's filmed like that. And then in the present, even though they've moved, they've just moved into this house and this house is like massive. Yeah. It's so big. They literally pretty much never go in the top two floors, <laughs> which we can get to later. Yeah. But she looks like she just walked out of a Robert Palmer video. Totally. She's got like the bright red lipstick, black earrings, black sunglasses. She's wearing her shoulder pads. She's got like the tiny little wasted dresses and skirts and stuff. She's killing it. Yeah. And I also think I get this impression. I don't know for sure, but I get the impression that she's a lot younger than Larry. Definitely. Like she's closer. She's probably closer in age to Kirsty than she is to Larry. Mm -hmm. Just based off of like the fact that she looks very young in the flashbacks. Yes. But that's the impression I got. So maybe there's like a little bit of a trophy wife trope there, but I don't know. Yeah. And it's also just like, I mean... Again, this is me reading a lot into this character, but I think that whatever her experiences with Frank unlocked in her, she, I don't want to say it's all because of, you know, all because she had good sex with Frank, but um, <laughs> I think that somehow that gave her a window into a journey that allowed her to realize that she could be this glamorous, empowered woman, not this young, naive potentially trophy wife to kind of a doofus like Larry's kind of a doofus yeah and I think all of a sudden that discovery and that exploration of like who she wants to be versus who she is then puts her at odds with Larry because I'm guessing the Julia that she is now is not the Julia that Larry first fell in love with and proposed to hence the problems they're having I'm sure yeah I definitely agree with you and it seems like Frank kind of just dropped her and, like, was not around, didn't talk to her. She was out of contact with him for a while. Mm -hmm. But she still had that, like, the longing there. When they first get there, she sees that there's photos of him and a bunch of other women, mm -hmm. which I'm sure she sussed out based off of his personality. Yeah, I don't necessarily think she rips one of them up, uh -huh. but I don't think it was out of jealousy. Yeah. I think it was just wanting to have a picture. I mean, because it's a nice picture of mm -hmm. Frank. You know, I think it was just wanting to have something of him close by. 
because she didn't seem particularly phased by any of the, you know, some of the pictures were pretty explicit. Mm -hmm. And she didn't seem particularly like, oh, my God, I can't believe he did that. Or Mm -hmm. how dare he? Or I thought we had something special. It was kind of just like, there's Frank being Frank. (laughs) Doing his Frank stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that she never really wanted to be the only one. She just wanted to be the most devoted yeah. To tell Frank, like, I will do anything for you. The other people that you're with, like, I think she says that when he leaves. Mm-hmm. She says, don't go. I will do anything. Yeah. Because she just wants more time with him. I don't think, though, that she is concerned with the fact that it's not exclusive. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem to be a problem. I wonder what would happen if Frank had stayed. Like, would... Julia have stayed with Larry would they have you know would she have broken off the wedding or the engagement and would she have gone on with Frank would that have been like a whole weird power couple thing maybe I mean I almost like envision them as like a really cool like polyamorous open relationship power couple where you know they can kind of like travel the world together and sleep with whomever they want and know that they're gonna you know kind of come back to each other that kind of a thing like the hunger except Polly and with S&M yeah exactly because <laughs> <laughs> the whole premise of the movie is that Frank like is pushing the limits of like sex and yeah. like pain and pleasure not love Correct. I yeah. don't think that Frank loves anybody. No. And, and we literally see that later in the movie. He kills Julia and yeah. says nothing personal. Yeah. Which I was like, man, cold-blooded. <laughs> yeah, total hedonist. He used her, you know. And I think that another important distinction of this is that Frank never made any promises to Julia. Nope. He was no. never like, I love you. I'll stay with you. I want to be with you. He never said any of those things to her. No. He did tell her, he he says, you can't love him about Larry. And Julia admits, I don't love him. But he never makes any promises to her. He never says, I will take you with me. Right. You'll be my queen or whatever the hell. You know, he never says any of those things. He just says, you told me you'll do anything. And so she does. She's like fully into it. And then... Yeah, it it's like mind boggling to me that he has that strong of a hold over her for almost no reason. Yeah. And then he just like, you know, drinks from her or absorbs her power or whatever it is. And then uh, he's just like nothing personal and just yeah. keeps going about his day. Just like, OK, well, that was I need I needed to feed. So I did that. And that's it. Yeah. So. I don't think Frank loves anything. No, I don't think so. But he's, like, pushing the limits, the boundaries of, like, pleasure and pain. More sensation, less, like, emotion. Yeah. And he says that he gets to a point with the Cenobites where pain and pleasure are indistinguishable. Which, when he said that initially, it's a scary, it's supposed to be scary. But to me, it made me think about queer longing, Mm-hmm. Now that I know that Clive Barker is gay, because when I first watched this movie, I had no idea. And so now I'm watching it through 2022 Teresa's eyes. The pain and pleasure thing, like the pain of longing after somebody or not being able to accept who you really are versus the pleasure of like finally succumbing to that or like mm-hmm. finally having that self-realization or self-actualization and being able to act on it. Although it's twisted and definitely messed up in this iteration that's what it made me think of is like longing to be yourself yeah and not being able to achieve that and then once you actually get there the chaos or the pain that can ensue from that Mm -hmm. i don't know just an interesting take on it definitely i think there's definitely something there the sort of complicated nature too of even like a coming out story you know, the joy of being able to be your authentic self or share your authentic self with somebody else, but the risk involved in, you know, in coming out, the potential backlash from people you thought cared about you, that that sort of thing. And it is for so many people, I'm not going to make a generalization and say for everybody, those two things are so intertwined. Mm -hmm. Like they cannot exist in absence of each other, the pain of it and the joy of it. So I think you're onto something there for sure. Yeah, the queer longing and like the queer love story there, I think, is threaded through 
But I think that there are so many boundaries just mm-hmm. in the filmmaking of this that already we're pushing, you know, like the MPA yeah. is like, you're going to have to cut some of this stuff out because it's too much. I think that that probably made it so that some of the queer aspects of that could be featured potentially could not be fully explored because queerness in cinema wasn't super accepted at no. that point. No. And we did see it, but not a lot. And certainly not in like an already fringe horror movie. Yeah. If there had been gay sex, if there had been a gay love story or a queer love story, like mm, it probably would have been like, okay, yeah, no, this is not getting a wide release. Right. Yeah. It would have gotten an X rating and have been relegated. And I think it would have still found its audience, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it would have as easily, let's say, become such a celebrated part of horror canon yeah it could have gotten there as a cult classic but um but now 35 years later i am excited to see what is now very common and widely accepted that we we get to explore in a new iteration of this i'm hoping that maybe that's like queer representation is a big part of it and we can get some of the the heart and soul of what the hellbound heart is about yeah Not that it's absent here, but, like, let's go ahead and push it. Like, it's going straight to streaming. Let's do it. I think they can get to that kind of heart and soul that you're talking about with a lot more care and nuance and overt conversation as opposed to you had to kind of really be in the know to pick up on it. I mean, not, not to say that it wasn't obvious i mean i think you're right when you said like before you even knew that clive barker was gay you were picking up on like the queer longing in it but i think with hellraiser because of the restrictions of the era and the mpaa you had to you have to be kind of fairly dialed in Mm -hmm. and certainly like we're coming from more of a 2022 progressive perspective so i think we are perhaps even more dialed in than the average horror viewer but especially like a horror viewer in 1987, you had to be a particularly dialed in viewer or of a particular identity or worldview, I think, to latch onto that very immediately, knowing very little at the time about Clive Barker. Mm -hmm. I think now he's more of a name and people sort of know his style and where he's coming from and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be nice, I hope, um, as you're saying, that with the remake or the reimagining, that we can just sort of put some of those things out there and then, and embrace a whole audience that perhaps saw this film in 1987 and was like, I think this is for me mm-hmm. or inclusive of me, I think. Uh, and we can just say, yeah, come on in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's very creepy, but it's for all of us. <laughs> I think that that is one thing of about this movie that you can say uh, probably is like the first Okay, so it's not the first, but probably the most recognizable the most recognizable aspect or instance where this happens where like it's so scary and they're exploring pleasure and pain where you're watching it and you're like, "Oh man, am I supposed to like I kind of like I kind of like it, but right. also like I'm I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to like it. Oh yeah, definitely not supposed to like it. But I like. I kind of like it. Yeah. And not all horror is kind of titillating in that mm-hmm. same way. But I think this is probably the one that comes to mind the most easily. Where you're like, this is scary, but it's sort of sexy, but also scary. Yeah. What is it that? Um. Oh, you haven't been watching She-Hulk, have you? No, not yet. Dang it. Okay. No. Well, there's a part where this character says, uh. It was sort of cool, and then it was scary, but then it was cool again, but then it was scary, but, like, in a cool way. <laughs> and I feel like that with this, except scary and sexy. It's like Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you say that because my mind instantly went to Hammer films. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're scary. They're sexy. Yes. And that's why I said it's not the first. I yeah. Was, I was yeah. thinking exactly that. <laughs> well, and so funny enough, I know that one of the things Clive Barker and Doug Bradley talked about with... Uh, the pinhead character Mm -hmm. and how he should speak and deliver his lines and sort of his bearing. One of the mentions that Clive Barker made was to Christopher Lee's Dracula. 
the sort of same thing as Hannibal Lecter, that that Dracula knows everything you're going to say, knows everything that's going to happen, but is going to let you do it because it's all part of his sexy game. (laughs) Oh, I love Christopher Lee. Yeah. Rest in peace. Love you so much. Yeah. What an inspiration. And to have inspired a creepier, sexier. Yeah. Not to say that his, his, like, I put his Dracula on a pedestal. And I don't say that about very many oh, things. Yeah, but, definitely. like, you can't really touch Christopher Lee's oh, Dracula yeah. in my brain. But to have, like, a creepier version of that and, like, not sexier, but, like, still sexy, but definitely creepier yeah. <laughs> version of him and, and uh, Doug Bradley's Pinhead, it's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. So I just wanted to talk about the Cenobites for a little bit, just, like, the design of them in oh, general. Yeah. Absolutely love them. In the first two movies, we get kind of the classic Cenobites. We have Pinhead, obviously. We have Chatterer. He's the one with the teeth. Mm -hmm. I think he's the only one who, like, always is showing his teeth. Yeah. And then you have Butterball. He's the one that is, like, bigger. Mm -hmm. Can I say fat? I guess he's fat. Like, that's why they call him Butterball. Yeah. Which he actually was the main, like, the lead Cenobite. Right. In, in the Hubbard in Heart. Heart. Yeah. Um, which is cool. And then you have the female Cenobite, who I think she has a name, but it was, like, not. It's Deep Throat. Deep Throat. That's yeah. right. Because she has, like, what looks like kind of a vaginal sort of inspired opening in her throat. It's, like, flayed open. But obviously they can't call her Deep Throat in the credits because that would not be good for the the MPAA is already like, you're walking on eggshells. Yeah. Don't do that. (laughs) But so they just called her Female Cenobite. Yeah. But just the design of them in general, super scary. The Chatterer especially, his face is just like completely like Mm -hmm. just messed up. His teeth are always showing. He's like slobbering constantly. Apparently the actor who played him initially like – couldn't see out of the mask so they just kind of had to be like all right just walk in a straight line they just like put him out like a a wind-up toy (laughs) just kind of okay go (laughs) just don't walk too far like once you bump into something stop yeah and then butterball is classic and those four are in the first and second one and then once you get to the third one they're kind of like experiment with some more (laughs) yeah i will say like with butterball and chatterer i mean i remember thinking this with chatterer originally but man if you are somebody who experiences a lot of misphonia like where mouth noises bother you like just be aware (laughs) that there's a lot of that yeah yeah it's uh it's a lot (laughs) yeah they're great, though. Like, some of the most iconic monsters. Oh, yeah, totally. Nothing really even comes close to that. And as the movies go on, like I said, there are uh, uh, experimentations. There's one in the third one that spits CDs. Yes, that's what I was thinking of. Because there's, there's, like, this big club scene, which I know we're not talking about the third one, but... Oh, that one is simply named... CD. <laughs> if you have not seen Hellraiser 3, please watch it just for the club kill scene alone. It is one of the goriest, highest yeah. body count like scenes in all of horror history. It's incredible. And the Cenobites, they're, they're something else. Fairly ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, they're cool. One thing that I noticed this time that I hadn't noticed in the past that kind of was like it was an interesting choice for them, and I think I know why they did it, but there's a scene when Christy finally has to confront the Cenobites. It's in the house, and they're basically like, you open the box, we came. Like, you're coming with us now. And she's like, I didn't mean to do it. And she decides to make an exchange with them, and she tells Pinhead that she will get her Uncle Frank, who escaped them. She'll bring him back, and they can take him to leave her. But when she's confronted with the Cenobites, the Chatterer grabs her and shoves his fingers in her mouth. Yes. And, like, holds her like that. Which, like, I don't know. that Just that very action. I don't know if it was a mistake or if it was purposeful. I'm sure it was probably purposeful. But it made my gag reflex trigger a little bit. Yeah. it's That's a really intense move. Like, it is. 
choking somebody is already intense because he's holding her and choking her but he he has his like his index finger and his middle finger down inside of her mouth and he's holding her like that and i was just like oh my god this is it's a very intimate gesture too yes it's intimate but also it's dangerous Mm -hmm. and it's there it's just something about that like familiarity that he's that he has over her what that he's doing that while she's facing Pinhead. I don't know why that stuck in my head this time. And I was like, dang. Because he could have just grabbed her by the throat. And just right. Because like, he ends up kind of like putting his forearm around her neck and like forcing her to look at Pinhead while he while she's screaming and, and trying to talk to him. But just that in particular, I was like, man, that is, that's a power move right there. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something that is definitely going to stick with me now that I've seen that. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to talk about the Chatterer for a minute. And the female Cenobite, like, both of them, love both of them. Oh, yeah. I love Pinhead because I love Doug Bradley. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially his coat, like, his head is what gets the most, you know, buzz. But especially his coat and, like, how his skin is, like, flayed over the parts of his yeah. coat. I don't think that that gets enough love and attention, but that is pretty messed up you often don't see that too it's often the thing that is left out in a lot of these sort of like mass market trinkets with him on it is that he's just got a plain like a solid black you know Mm -hmm. coat with the high collar but the actual coat it has those flay marks it's got the open stomach it's really interesting it's really gross yeah (laughs) um Okay, so let's talk about the stepmother, the evil stepmother. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the whole idea of the evil stepmother is a trope that is, it's one of those tropes that we see going, you know, so far back in our storytelling, like, you know, either the stepmother or the sort of older woman who turns evil i mean we see this going all the way back to like early storytelling greek mythology etc this sort of interesting trope and i think that julia fits right into that you know we sort of see her set up at the beginning even prior to the flashbacks she's the stepmother she's british and everybody else is american so that's setting her apart she's very glamorous but she's very cold Mm -hmm. she's set apart from the rest of the people around them she and kirstie's relationship is civil Mm -hmm. but they're not close you can tell and part of that might be because they're closer in age than it seems like she and larry are Mm -hmm. and then throughout the film it's like i kept thinking about the evil queen in Snow White, Mm -hmm. just the way that she is portrayed, probably because the evil queen in Snow White is like, you know, the ultimate in Mm -hmm. evil stepmothers in sort of like our modern fictional minds. Sure, yeah. I just think about like the way she's framed, how sometimes we have her like standing on a staircase looking down at everybody (laughs) or sort of glowering from a corner. (laughs) She just fits the trope so perfectly. And yet, as in so many of the sort of modern retellings of fairy tales that we've seen, she is, yes, the trope of the evil stepmother, but she is not a woman without nuance and Mm -hmm. feelings of her own, as we see in this film. So I like that this movie does what a lot of modern media is doing, which is taking those classic tropes and then saying, okay, yeah, here's the trope. But where's the humanity behind the trope or what's going on with this person who is a trope? You know, Mm -hmm. what's actually motivating them? And we don't get her whole story and that's okay. But I really like the way that worked, that we got both the trope, but we get something a little more to be like, oh, yeah, she's a person. Yeah. She's also vulnerable. She also experiences sadness and depression and longing and need. Definitely. But in the same vein as that evil stepmother trope, the thing that she is coveting is her downfall. Yep, exactly. And that's classic, but this is her character arc is interesting because you you sympathize with her and then she gets what's coming and you're like, okay, that's satisfying though too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some of the symbolism. Okay. 
So there's a couple of scenes where I wanted to get your opinions on this because I honestly did not remember these happening in the movie. And when we rewatched it, I was like, oh, I wonder what Juliet thinks. Um, I think we're going to have the same one because <laughs> I made a note about one of them, too. So one of them is the feather scene mm-hmm. where Kirstie's dreaming and she's just spent time with, I think, I think that's the one where she has slept with that guy that was at the dinner party. Yeah. And she's spending the night and, like, wakes up screaming. But her dream is that she's in this room with, like, down feathers blowing everywhere. And in front of her is sort of, like, a plinth where somebody's laying and then they're, like, bleeding through a sheet. Mm -hmm. And eventually um, she pulls the sheet off and it's, like, her flayed uncle slash dad. I I mean, I think it... It's supposed to be her dad because she's, like, constantly terrified that her dad's going to die. Yeah. But I wanted to see what you thought about that, about specifically the feathers and the white sheet. Yeah, I'm not sure. Because one would assume that, like, okay, it's a movie called Hellraiser (laughs) and, you know, white sheet, white feathers. Those are sort of the imagery of heaven or God or angels. But I don't know if that's it because this movie is so devoid of like overt Christian symbolism otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that is necessarily the case here. I certainly think it is perhaps a premonition mm-hmm. to kind of show her that up against this sort of terrible violence that she can be an antithesis to that or a foil to that violence and the white and the feathers might just be a way to sort of show her like here's the opposite of what you're going to encounter and you can exist in this opposite space or find a way to find this opposite space in the face of this very startling violence so that's kind of where I went with it and it's interesting. It makes sense that she would imagine her dad dead because her mother has already died. Right. So obviously losing your other parent, that's a common, you know, worry. But it's almost like Kirsty has, like, telepathy. Like, right. Because she's not really involved with any of these things. At this point, she hasn't touched the box. She doesn't mm-hmm. know about Uncle Frank. None of that stuff. But she's having these weird premonitions and, like, very intense, scary dreams and encounters. And she also has the encounter with the vagrant. Right. Um, who comes into, he's credited as the vagrant, who comes into the pet store that she's working in and is like randomly eating crickets. I do wish that they had done a little bit more with him. Mm-hmm. I like that they tie him into like being the Leviathan at the end. I really do like that. And I love that that comes back into play in the sequels. Yes. Like you're never free of this. But it almost makes me wonder was Kirsty marked because of the Leviathan already? Or mm. was her encounter with Pinhead and her, the trickery that was happening and her sacrifice of Frank, was that what caused all of that? That's a really interesting question. I almost wonder if she... Well, okay, so it's... I mean, this is getting highly philosophical. I guess it's a question of like, is everything predetermined? Mm-hmm. Or do we have like free will that then influences choice? But uh, given where the puzzle box ends up at the end, and given the second movie, and I know like we're focused on the first movie, um, and I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but the second movie would lead me to believe, the fate of the box and the second movie would lead me to believe that perhaps this is all predetermined. Mm-hmm. Like she's marked yeah. somehow. Yeah. Like she has some sort of like sort of Nightmare on Elm Street-esque, like, dream link. Yeah, something. And all of these other things just kind of, like, lined up behind it. Yeah. Or that those things were happening independently of one another, and she's just at the crux of a very unfortunate set of... It's possible, too. <laughs> like, accidental... Uh, what is that called? Coincidence. Also, there's a crying child in, yeah. in that scene. I wonder if that... The crying child thing has something to do with, like, her losing her mom. That was my assumption. Yeah. Because it's, like, a crying child that then morphs into Christy screaming, like, Mm -hmm. when she wakes up. So I I thought that. But the other imagery that I thought was super interesting is when Kirsty is in, she wakes up in the hospital. This is the one I was going to ask you about. With the, the red carnation blooming? Yes. Yeah. What did you think of that? Well, it's really interesting. So we see the red carnation bloom. We see... 
Frank, in his sort of bloodied, weird, fleshy, skeletal state, kind of really stark red against a really black background. And we get this shot of this really, really red carnation blooming against this black background. And then we see the carnation again um, on the television in the hospital where the nurse is watching. And then we see it, it reappears a couple more times mm-hmm. throughout the movie. That one is really curious to me because like flowers blooming in traditional symbolism can mean like many things, mm-hmm. you know, it's birth, it's new life, it's a blossoming, it's a discovering, which mm-hmm. is what I wonder with Kirsty if that's what it is. Mm-hmm. It can also be like sexual. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case in her case, though. Mm-hmm. I think it's more of a discovering mm-hmm. or an about to discover. You know, she's about to, her world is about to sort of burst open and unfold upon itself because she's got the puzzle box in hand. She hasn't opened it yet, but the possibility is right there. And when she does, you know, chaos ensues. Right. Uh, literally, the wall opens up. She meets the Cenobites, etc. Yeah. I mean, this could be reductive, but like the red, uh, like the blood, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like ex- that whole experience. And Kirstie is kind of like a fully formed adult by the time that we encounter her. Like she is away from. Yeah. She lives separately from her dad. She, like, has her own boyfriend and uh, own relationships and things like that. She gets a job, even though she doesn't have to. It seems like her family's kind of well off. He's like, you've already made the gesture. You got your room. And she's like, no, I want to do this for me. Mm -hmm. So she's an adult already. But it's a new level of strength that maybe she didn't know that she had or she's never had to express or, like, never come up against anything like that. But kudos to her for not, like, completely shitting herself during all of this yeah i mean she does freak out this is a very very good performance from somebody who's never acted in a full-length movie before but yeah kudos to her for not completely losing her mind yeah from seeing frank or seeing the cenobites or whatever and i do want to say that her boyfriend i forget what his name is it doesn't matter yeah inconsequential boyfriend character yeah like also Kudos to him for not completely freaking out. Yeah. Because he gets all of the scariest parts. He really does. Yeah. He runs into Pinhead. He runs into Butterball. Yep. He runs into the strange worm scorpion thing. Yes. I don't know what that's called. It's weird. It's like yeah. upside down flying scorpion man. <laughs> I don't know. It's like something out of Labyrinth, but a thousand times scarier. Yeah. Like the worst part of Labyrinth. Yeah. But yeah, like, he also just was like, all right, let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Like, this is fine. Um, another Tuesday at, yeah. the, at the Cotton House, <laughs> which apparently is their last name. I didn't know that until I was reading yeah. through the trivia. The symbolism of those two scenes in particular, very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. I hope that there's more weird symbolism in the, in the new iteration oh, of yes. this, for sure. Other strange thing, like we kind of talked about the chatterer putting his fingers in, uh, its fingers in Kirsty's mouth. Fingers being put into bodies, which I know sounds like, oh, fingers and bodies, is a theme throughout. It is. Yeah. Which is both like, once again, sexual and scary. Mm-hmm. In order to drain yeah. The people, Frank has to put both of his fingers into their neck in this, like, really gross way. They just do, like, tiny little snippets of it because the MPA was, like, that's gross. Yeah, like, no. Yeah. Um, but he has to dig his fingers into their neck in order to, like, drink them. And I was, like, first of all, ew. <laughs> Second of all, what an interesting piece of imagery to juxtapose against that scene with the chatterer. Mm-hmm. Like, fingers entering into a person's body or just you know any part of you entering into a person's body like what connotation is there mm-hmm. especially if we're talking about from like an snm you know yep. type world of 1987 so i think that that's really interesting and obviously there's a link there that i think you can't deny between you know but it's just a way to get by the censors. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also think it was effective in that, you know, it kept it from, and I, I mentioned this same kind of principle with, actually with Chud, I think, it kept it very clear 
as to what this wasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not a vampire. Yes. You know, he's not biting somebody's neck and sucking their blood. Like, let it be clear, Frank is not a vampire. Yeah. Frank is some other thing, but he's not a vampire. And I think having it be that act of the fingers also helped really clarify that for viewers. Like, no, like, don't be mistaken into thinking this is some kind of vampire thing. Mm-hmm. This is a whole other situation over here. And... It's not even really clear what it is that he's absorbing. He keeps saying blood, but some of the people don't look like it's blood. Yeah. And, and like, it also looks like their bodies still have blood in them. And then he takes Larry's face. Right. Exactly. So it's like, what exactly is it that he's taking? Is it like life force and blood? Or what exactly is it? Pieces? I don't know. Another thing I... I want to say this before I forget because I totally thought about it while we were talking <laughs> and I didn't even didn't even occur to me. So one of like the reasons why Frank gets to come back is there's a scene during the flashback and this is the time when Frank and Julia are first having sex. This is the their first meeting mm-hmm. and they're first having sex and Julia orgasms and at the same time in the present Frank scratches his hand on this gigantic nail. I didn't think about it until we were just talking about this. What an interesting juxtaposition because after Frank like injures himself on that nail, he's like, I'm going to faint. I'm oh, going to pass. Larry. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes. When Larry um, injures himself on the nail, he goes to Julia and he's like, I'm going to faint. I'm going to pass out. And so he's like weak. Yeah. Right after she's just had this, like, imagining of her and Frank's first time when Frank is, like, powerful and, and yeah. you know, seductive and forceful. And then she has to go to Larry, who is, like, weak and, like, I'm going to pass out because there's blood, you know. And don't get me wrong. Like, I would probably be squeamish, too, if oh, I yeah. had, like, because yeah. it's a huge nail and it really got him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, a lot. <laughs> but what an interesting juxtaposition of, like, how different the two of them are these two mm-hmm. brothers are between this fantasy or this remembering that she's just had of her being with like this strong maybe strong powerful uh forceful like what she imagines to be very masculine guy to his brother who she's married to who's like i cut myself and now i'm going to faint when Frank, like, just randomly brandishes the switchblade and is yeah. like, I'm going to cut your clothes, <laughs> which I would be mad because yeah, right? that's my clothes. Clothes are expensive. Right. But just an interesting juxtaposition of the two. Like, I'm sure that that was no, like, it was on purpose to oh, do yeah. it like that. But very, very interesting. Definitely. Also makes you wonder how Julia would stay with Larry if she's like, Frank is the pinnacle of man. And yeah. then she's like, okay, Larry. Yeah. Maybe he's rich. I mean, I, yeah, we don't get that full backstory and that's okay. But you do wonder like what it was that kept her with Larry. And I was going to say, well, that's reductive, but it's not reductive because she admits that she doesn't love Larry. Exactly. Yeah. So if she doesn't love him, she's not a fan of Kirsty. They don't have kids together. She hates this house. Yeah. Why is she there? Is it proximity? Yeah. Or is it security? Yeah, it's exactly. probably security. Uh, that's what I would She say. has, she, I mean, her wardrobe indicates that she probably needs some spending to, money. To quote Maxine from X, <laughs> she has expensive taste. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they're back in England because they're going, he's, Frank is, or um, Larry is going through all of the reasons why it's good that they're back mm-hmm. in this place. Well, okay, so they're not back in England. They're actually technically in New York, but originally they were supposed to be in England. Right. Which is why a lot of the characters are redubbed, which you'll probably notice if you watch the movie. Mm-hmm. Frank's entire character is redubbed. Yeah. But so they're technically in New York, although I've never seen a house like that in New York. I'll no. tell you that. <laughs> Upstate New York? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Like definitely not the city, though. No. And, and Kirsty's like walking along the shore, like the East River Shore. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's not. No. <laughs> um, but he's like, oh, yeah, you're back in your wheelhouse. But he doesn't mention that she has a job or that right. she's, like, otherwise occupied. So it seems like it's probably she for just kind of goes to bars and picks up men for Frank to eat. That's her job. That's a job. Yeah. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, Frank will never 
ascend to his final butterfly form. <laughs> I do want to say that it kind of sucks that Frank doesn't get any cool powers out of this. It's true, yeah. Like, you would think that after going through the edges of pain and pleasure in the weird dimensional realms and having to encounter the Cenobites and then escaping the Cenobites and then being resurrected and drinking a whole bunch of blood, you would think that he has sweet powers, but... Yeah, he's got nothing. Aside from the finger drinky blood thing, like, that's it. It seems like less of a power and more of a liability. Yes, exactly. I also kind of wonder, and we never really figure this out, like, how often would he have to feed after this? Like, all that's the time? That's a really good question. Or would he, like, decay? Or, like, is he yeah. immortal? More questions. But it's okay that we don't have answers because... It's Clive Barker, so you probably exactly. don't. You probably don't want the answers. No, yeah, I don't. I don't necessarily <laughs> know that I want to know <laughs> to, to go down that road any further than we have. Next time, we are going to do the oldest movie that we have done thus far, which I'm really excited about. It is a good time to be doing this movie because, as always, with classic Universal Pictures. It is popping up on all the streaming services in time for Halloween. Woo woo. Yeah. And this one in particular of a lot of interest to us because it is queer horror. It is femme-centric horror. And uh, remarkably so for being made in 1936. So next time we are going to be talking about Dracula's daughter. Oh, heck yes. I'm very excited about this. I've only seen it one time before and not all the way through, so I am oh, very nice. I'm very excited to revisit this one. I have seen this one many, many times and I have been eager to talk about it, so I'm yes. very excited. Yay. Well that's really exciting because I, I definitely want to hear what you have to say about it. Awesome. So next time, Dracula's daughter, uh, as always, check us out on the social medias and uh, be looking for some announcements from us soon about uh, Patreon links. Woo! Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.